The title for today's class is We Are Our Parents. And that is a um, very intentional title. And we'll see a large part of what I mean by that. Um, there are other parts uh, that we're probably not going to be able to get to uh, this morning, but uh, some, some of it will be alluded to and to be covered another time. So again, Parshas Pinchas, 17th of Tammuz, we are our parents. I wish everybody an easy fast day tomorrow. This month, the month of Tammuz, is dedicated by Daniel and Brittany Lombardi and family in memory of their grandmother, Doris Lombardi. Her strength, purpose, and joyful approach to life, along with her strong emphasis on Judaism, remain a huge inspiration to the entire family. We thank Brittany and Daniel for their sponsorship and uh, look forward to uh, many, many good years of our learning together. This week's class is dedicated in the merit of Rafua Shlema for David ben Aliza, Eitan Shmuel ben Chana Simma, David ben Lea, Dobert Tzvi Hirsch ben Dina, Yosef Shimon ben Serena, Ayelet Pastalia Chaya, and Chana Miriam Bas Rechel Reiser. Perhaps the most difficult subject of life is death. The concept of death challenges us all to deal with the existential concepts of purpose, God, and most practically, how to spend our most irretrievable resource called time. So when we contemplate death, we have to think about the temporal nature of life, the fact that we can't reacquire time, and therefore, how do we spend our time? Additionally, in the face of death, we are subconsciously aware that all of our attachments in life may indeed be fleeting ones. Thus, even our most precious relationships become major subjects of concern in that we wish to remain permanently attached to our loved ones, despite our knowledge that all life comes to an end. It is because of the above considerations that when we learn in our Torah that we human beings have had in our past opportunities to overcome mortality, our minds are ca captivated with the possibilities and we want to know more. According to our Chachamim, the fast of the 17th of Tammuz reintroduced death to the Jewish nation. And this is because initially, when we had received the Torah, we had achieved immortality. As the Gemara in Shabbos, page 146a, teaches us. And when we sinned with the golden calf on the 17th of Tammuz, we once again reverted to being mere mortals. In today's discussion, we will glean some important insights on the subject of immortality that will provide specific mindsets and goals for our lives that may dramatically shift and hopefully improve the way that we emotionally, mentally, and spiritually deal with this incredibly important and difficult subject called death. So here's a brief listing of the major topics discussed in Parshas Pinchas. Hopefully at the end, we'll do just a general overview wrap up of these topics, but we're really only gonna focus on one area of the Parsha. So number one, Pinchas is awarded the priesthood because of his heroism in killing Zimri and Kazbi. Number two, the Jewish people are counted. Number three, the apportioning of Eretz Yisrael by way of lottery. Didn't happen yet, but we are told that that's the way it will be given out 
in the future. Number four, Hashem agrees with the daughters of Tzalafcha that they should, yes, inherit their father's portion in Eretz Yisrael, as in fact they have no brothers. Number five, inheritance laws, meaning the way succession happens is described in this week's parsha. Also specific laws related to the first generation that went into the land of Israel. Number six, Moshe is informed of his, of his personal impending death and then his request to appoint an appropriate replacement is fulfilled through his student, Yehoshua bin Nun. We're gonna do a deep dive on that topic. And number seven, the laws of daily and Shabbos Musaf offerings, right? So uh, daily Shabbos and Musaf, and then number eight, a long listing of the special holiday Musaf offerings. Now, as I mentioned, we will primarily focus on the verses that deal with the coming death of Moshe Rabbeinu and his being instructed by Hashem to appoint Yehoshua as his successor. So the Torah tells us that Hashem said to Moshe, go up to these mountain or this area called Avarim, that are mountains, and that is where you should view the land that I have given to the Jewish people. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your nation, meaning you will die, just as your brother Aharon died. Because in the wilderness of Tzim, when the community was contentious, when they were arguing and and complaining for water, you disobeyed my command to uphold my holiness in their sight by means of the water. Those are the waters of Meriva, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Tzim. So this is where Moshe is informed specifically that he should look at Eretz Yisrael, then he will die because he did not properly sanctify Hashem in the sight of the people when it came to the waters of Meriva. Then Hashem Then Moshe said to Hashem, let Hashem, the source of the breath of all flesh, appoint someone over the community. So that means Moshe is asking Hashem to appoint the next leader. This person shall go out before them and come in before them and he shall take them out and bring them in so that Hashem's community may not, like, may not be like sheep that have no shepherd. And Hashem answered Moshe, single out Yeshua, son of Nun, an inspired man, and lay your hand upon him. Have him stand before Elazar the priest and before the whole community and commission him in their sight. Invest him with some of your hod. Uh, one translation says authority, or it means like glory, some aspect of greatness and spirituality. So invest that authority, greatness, glory into Yahushua so that the whole Jewish community may obey. But he shall present himself to Elazar the priest who shall on his behalf seek the decision of the Urim before Hashem. That means that in the future, Yehoshua will ask questions of Elazar from the breastplate of Elazar who was the high priest, the Choshen. And by such instruction shall they go out and by such instruction shall they come in, he and the Jewish people or the army and the whole community. Moshe did as Hashem commanded him. He took Yehoshua and had him stand before Elazar the Kohen, and before the whole community. He laid his hands upon him, this is the original Semicha, and commissioned him as Hashem had spoken through Moshe. So from all of these sentences, it is clear that Hashem informs Moshe that he will not enter Eretz Israel, that he will die in a similar fashion to his brother Aharon, and immediately thereafter, Moshe requests that a leader be appointed and Hashem tells Moshe to invest Yeshua with authority 
or glory and to appoint Yehoshua as the successor to Moshe. Now, there's a few comments of Rashi that I want to mention before we put it all together and ask our questions. So when the Torah says that Moshe spoke, spoke to Hashem and requested a leader by saying, let Hashem set a man or appoint a man over the congregation, Rashi says that this statement shows the praise of the righteous people. When they are about to depart from the world, as Hashem told Moshe, you are going to die, they abandon all thought of their own affairs and occupy themselves with the affairs of the community. And that's why even though Moshe was told that he is gonna die, he doesn't go home and spend time with his family or do what most people would do, pay attention to their last you know, few hours or days or weeks or months by focusing on themselves. Instead, the first thing he does is ask that Hashem should appoint a leader for the community so that there should not be a concept or an idea that the community will have no shepherd. And then, Rashi continues, when Moshe said that let Hashem set a man over the people to appoint a, a leader, when Moshe heard that Hashem said to him, give the inheritance of Tzalafchad to his daughters, Moshe said to himself, oh, the time has come that I should ask something that I need, namely that my sons should inherit my position. So what Rashi is telling us now is that first First Rashi says that Moshe focused on what the community needed. But then Rashi tells us that when he heard that Hashem said to the daughters of Slavcha that they will in fact inherit their father, Moshe says, oh, now it's time to ask for what I need. And what did Moshe need? That his sons, namely Gershom and Eliezer, should inherit his position. But Hashem replied to him, this is not my concept. In other words, that's not what I'm thinking, says Hashem to Moshe. Yehoshua deserves to receive the reward of his ministrations because, as the Torah says in Sefer Shemos, Yehoshua never departed from the tent of Moshe Rabbeinu. He was there consistently, always serving, always learning. The Talmud says he would actually prepare the, the study hall for, for, for the chairs and for the study of the students. And because he always was in the tent, it's time for him to receive his reward, which is what Shlomo HaMelech said, the one who guards the fig tree shall eat the fruit of the fig tree, and he that waits on his master, right, he that pays attention to his master's needs on a constant basis shall be honored. That's a Midrash Tanhuma on our Parsha, Pinchas 27.16. And the last comment of Rashi for now is that when the sentence says, and in the future, Yehoshua will stand in front of El-Azar, the high priest, and ask questions of the Urim, the Tumim of the breastplate. It says that Rashi explains that here, this is what Hashem is telling Moshe, here you have the request that you have made, that this honor will not depart from your father's house because Yehoshua too will need El-Azar, which means that this that Moshe had requested, that Gershom and Eliezer should receive his position is now being kind of appeased by virtue of the fact that Yehoshua will need to stand in front of El-Azar, who's Moshe's nephew, which is an honor to the house of Moshe's father. So from these comments of Rashi, you can learn a background discussion that took place between Hashem and Moshe once Moshe learned and accepted that he would die and not enter Eretz Israel, right? According to Rashi, 
as soon as Moshe internalizes that he will not be entering Eretz Israel, and that indeed he will die, he concerns himself with the needs of the Jewish people and not his own personal needs. He therefore requests that Hashem appoint the next leader. Nonetheless, Moshe does ask that his own sons should inherit his position, which Hashem denies. Hashem says that Yehoshua should take his reward for all of his faithful years of serving and studying in Moshe's tent, and thus Yehoshua is appointed. Lastly, when Hashem tells Moshe that in the future, Yehoshua will need to ask questions of Elazar, the high priest, Hashem says to Moshe, here you have the request that you have made, that this honor should not depart from your father's house, for Yehoshua too will need Elazar, the high priest. So here are four questions on all of this information. Number one, why is it considered a need of Moshe that his sons inherit his position or his authority? I would understand that it's what Moshe wants for his sons. It's what his sons maybe need for his, uh, for their future. But why is it a need of Moshe? That's question number one. Question number two, why is it ever an assumed right that children should inherit their father's position? Isn't the obvious criterion made the best candidate win? Why is it ever a concept in Judaism that the position of the father passes down to the children? And by the way, this is true. It seems even in halacha, when it comes to passing down, let's say a rabbinical position, I know in synagogues, this is sometimes adjudicated where there are children to take over from the father and maybe other candidates are being considered. It seems that very often the priority right is given to the children. Why is that so? It should just be, and a, thought, a question of who is the best candidate. Number, question number three. If, as Rashi states, that this statement that Yoshua is going to stand in front of Elazar serves to show the, I'm sorry, this statement that, um, that the Torah says that Moshe asked for the next leader, that that serves to show the praise of the righteous when they are about to depart from the world, that they abandon all thought of themselves with the affairs of the community. So why does Moshe immediately say, hey, don't forget, I have a need also. I want to appoint my children. It's literally almost back to back in Rashi, where one Rashi says, Moshe abandons all thought of his own personal household and pays attention to the community because he asks Hashem for a leader. But then he asks that the leader be his sons because that's his need. That seems to be uh, an incredible contradiction. And finally, question number four, Rashi says, here you have the request that you have made that this honor should not depart from your father's house because Yoshua also needs a lazar. Well, quite frankly, that's hard to understand why that would appease Moshe Rabbeinu. How, how is this in any way mollifying Moshe for his children being denied Moshe's position? So I would like to um, begin our explanation by starting to understand a little bit about the inheritance laws and really what's happening with the daughters of Tzalafchad. We have a concept in Judaism called inheritance, which tells us something very interesting. I think most of us assume that inheritance laws are based on the idea that if a person leaves property, the people that are closest to him are entitled to inheriting that property. 
And I want to suggest that there's really something different that's happening in the laws of inheritance. Really, what's at the root of the laws of inheritance is that a fundamental aspect of a person's self passes into their children. And that this specifically means that a father or a mother passes themselves down to the next generation. And that means that in regards to the way that children live, they are meant to carry forward the roles and the mission of their parents. So when a parent family has assets and they pass it down to the next generation, it's not just that they have the rights, so to speak, to take the money, but they also have a responsibility to do with the money similar things that the parents would have done because really children ought to live the role of their parents. We're gonna see more about this in a second and we'll see this is really the case in the Daughters of Slutva. Now for the sake of this entire discussion, we are going to consider a husband and wife as a team, as a unit, that they have a unified partnership and that their mission is established together as a team with the husband taking responsibility and leading the way, of course, with the wife deciding with him, as well as the two of them working together and assisting each other in this mission. We know this from many places, I don't wanna to get too deep into it now, but we know that ultimately the responsibility to carry out the mission devolves first on the husband, but it's a team that actually has to carry it out and carry it forward. And also we will consider that typically what happens in marriage, and this is very clear from the Midrash and Eicha, by the way, is that sons continue the legacy and the mission of the family of origin from which they stem. And daughters, as they marry, they continue the legacy and the mission of the family into which they marry. This is why it's commonly held that men, you know, keep the last name and their wives take the last name of the husband. This is the way it is across the world. And this is really the way that we know that it exists in the Torah as well, which is why typically for the laws of inheritance, it's the sons that inherit women needed to be provided until they get married. That's uh, taken care of in, in, in the Gemara. But the bottom line is that this is typically the way that the roles are shaking down. The way that the Midrash and Echa tells us is that the sons are compared to the, the, the thighs or the legs of the home, and the daughters are compared to the wings. The, the daughters fly away and they build their husband's family, and the, and the men, the sons, they stay and keep the house of their family of origin and that mission. That's the way it goes practically. It's also what we're told from the beginning that the wife is an Azer Kinegda, a helpmate corresponding to him, but ultimately they become one unit. And so therefore the sons are carrying out the mission of both the father and the mother. And then you have the way the families are built is, you know, goes by the male side and the women build uh, the male side of the family. So it happens to be that the daughters of Tzalafad were exceedingly wise and understood this. And this is why they prevailed. What the daughters of Tzalafad said, and the reason that Hashem agreed with them, is they said, look, if our father had sons, 
So then our father's name and his legacy would be carried on through his sons, but he has no sons. And therefore it must be the daughters that will carry forward the father's name when there are daughters, because otherwise we should be considered as if we don't exist. And really that would mean that, uh, that our father's, um, our mother would be subject to the law of Yibum because it would be as if she has no children. And Hashem agrees with them because daughters are yes, considered to be children. But the point is that when there are no sons, the daughters do have the responsibility to take on their family of origin legacy, which is why in that generation, the daughters of Slavad were in fact not allowed to marry out of the tribe. They had to stay within the tribe because they really needed to continue the legacy of their, their family and of their tribe. So the idea that each generation lives and carries forward the mission of the previous generation is a gargantuan idea, and it really should change how we look at life in general. Each generation must carry forward the mission of the previous generation, the family of origin, as we've been discussing, plus devise and establish their own uniqueness and their own mission specific, so to speak, within the context and the umbrella of everything that's been built until that point. And so the concept that we know that we speak about all the time that really reflects this is the concept of a bias ne'eman Israel. A bias ne'eman means a steadfast, reliable house within the Jewish people. And what we're asking for or praying for or giving a blessing of every new Jewish couple that gets established in the Jewish nation is that they should be steadfast and true to the mission of the house of the Jewish people that came before them. Now, let me share with you, there's a very important sentence in the book of Ruth, which, you know, as we know, is the story of the uh, kind of um, carrying forward the mission of the Mashiach, which says that Rachel and Leah, they both built Beis Yisrael. Asher Banush Dehemis, Beis Yisrael. Rachel and Leah, they built the Beis Yisrael, that means, that with the establishment of the tribes, they began this concept called the base Israel, and the house of Israel is an eternal house, and it's an eternal mission. And every family that gets built after the base Israel were established by Rachel and Leah have an opportunity to attach to the mission of this base Israel or to not fulfill that earlier generation and their mission and their purpose. And that's why this, by the way, this passage from Ruth is uh, chapter four, sentence 11. And it says that when the people were blessing Ruth for marrying Boaz, they said, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel, and therefore Ruth should prosper in Ephras, and perpetuate your name in base lesson. This is all related to the whole concept of Yibum, which the Book of Ruth talks about. I said, we're not gonna be able to get all of, it to all of it today, but this is a very, very fundamental concept that the Jewish people are a house called base Israel, and every generation has an opportunity to build a house within that house. 
and to carry forward the earlier generation, plus uniquely contribute whatever the new generation is all about. So stepping into the role of our family, that means the previous position of our father or the role in the community that the family took is a responsibility of the next generation. And I believe that this is what Moshe Rabbeinu means, that this is his need. As Moshe Rabbeinu was about to depart from the world, he lived his life, he fulfilled a tremendous goal and role and mission, as we all know, and he was carrying forward his previous generation's mission. But he also has a responsibility to try to establish that the next generation of his own making, his own children, that they too will follow and build what he was building from the earlier generations. And so therefore Moshe Rabbeinu considers it to be his own need to establish that Gershom and Eliezer will in fact carry forward the mission that Moshe was building and that his family with Amram was also building that Moshe Rabbeinu was building upon. So that's why it's considered the need of Moshe. It wasn't about giving his children power or giving them money or giving them a purpose. It was about establishing that his children who are supposed to step into Moshe Rabbeinu's role will in fact carry that forward. And that is really why it is supposed to go to the next generation, the children of the person who had the authority and position, because that's the responsibility of the next generation is to fulfill what was happening in the earlier generation. So when a father's role is community, like Moshe Rabbeinu, who his role was so much about the entire Jewish people, passing down this role to his children is also the community need. So he was thinking about the community when he was asking for his quote unquote own need, because that was the need of his family, of his legacy, of Amram's legacy, Amram and Yocheved's legacy. And what we also see so beautiful about the legacy of Amram is that the house of Amram, which by the way, the whole story with Amram starts, that a man from the house of Levi went and took a daughter of Levi, namely Yocheved, right? That the house of Amram was committed to elevating the Jewish nation to fulfilling the house of Israel mission. That is why the Torah in Shemos is describing that Amram remarried Yocheved so that the Jewish people would survive and thrive at the behest of his daughter Miriam, as the Gemara tells us. But this is exactly what Amram was doing. And by the way, the name Amram means elevated nation. So Amram and Yocheved, the house of Levi, the daughter of Levi, were specifically attempting to elevate the entire Jewish people to carrying forward the mission of Rachel and Leah, which is to establish the Jewish nation. They built a house called Beis Israel, and Amram and Yocheved are trying to move that mission forward when they are getting remarried, <clears throat> ultimately, in, and produce Moshe. Of course, earlier they had Aharon and Miriam. Miriam, of course, as well, we know, and Yocheved, merit themselves houses. That's what the Torah tells us. They built, um, uh, Hashem made houses for them, which refer to the houses of the priesthood and the houses of the kingship, because the concept is that a house 
as a permanence beyond its individual members that lives on into the future, more about a house in a minute. But Moshe is definitely appeased by the idea that Yehoshua, who will in fact step into Moshe's role and leadership, is going to stand in front of Elazar because the house of Amram is being represented when Yehoshua stands in front of Elazar. So Moshe knows that the house that Amram built, which is part of Moshe's mission to carry forward, is actually going to exist in the future because even with Yehoshua, who's from a different tribe, is stepping into this role of leadership of the Jewish people, ultimately the house of Amram is represented as well. And that is an appeasement to Moshe Rabbeinu because that is what Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to establish. Now, we get to a fundamental question that I know many people often wonder about Gershom and Eliezer. Many of us are always puzzled by the lack of acclaim or fame or position that Gershom and Eliezer seem to hold after the death of Moshe Rabbeinu. And as this Rashi very clearly tells us that Moshe was lobbying for Gershom and Eliezer, Hashem denied them, meaning Hashem denied granting the leadership to Gershom and Eliezer. And the question is, why? And I think from here we learn something that's very practical, that I think is not um, a reach. I think it makes sense to learn this way and to say it because it seems to be also what Rashi is implying. And that is that Gershom and Eliezer did not do what Yehoshua did. What did Yehoshua do? He never moved from the tent from serving Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe Rabbeinu's mission of teaching Torah to the Jewish people. That is a role that Yehoshua lived his entire apprenticeship, 40 years of Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert. And therefore we can glean from this that Gershom and Eliezer did not do that. Yehoshua bin Nun did that. And from this we learn that in order to step into the role of our parents, we can't be thinking of inheriting position. We have to care through their lifetimes about what they cared. Yoshua cared for the teaching of Torah to the Jewish people because that was what Moshe Rabbeinu cared about. And Yoshua was completely focused on assisting Moshe Rabbeinu in that task. That's what prepared Yoshua to be the next leader to step into the role of Moshe Rabbeinu and to carry that mission forward for the rest of the Jewish people. Gershom and Eliezer did not do that. I'm not here to besmirch them and to say anything negative about them because it's all by inference. We don't know what they did. We don't really know how, what they became uh, for the most part. But what we do know is that they were not in the tent because had they been, then they definitely would have been chosen because Hashem is specifically saying that Yoshua gets this role because of his staying in the tent that is the reward for his years of dedication and service. But let's get a little bit more practical on that. That means that for us, thinking about who our parents were, thinking about the roles that they fulfilled, but also deeply thinking about caring for the things that they cared about, hopefully we have in the past, and hopefully we continue to do so now, there's a tremendous benefit that happens when we live with this perspective. The big benefit of us living with the perspective that we are here 
to build on top of earlier generations and their missions is that we begin to live with a deep realization of the eternity of the Jewish people and the fact that we are part of that eternity, especially when we take on the role of building the previous generation's works and mission. That's part of a mind shift that I think we all need to adopt. It is depressing to think about mortality. It is depressing to think about what happens next. But the truth is we've lost sight of what the Torah tells us, not only about the fact that there is a future and that we accept, you know, it's a, a third thing, uh, you know, it's part of our principles of, of, of Amuna that there is a resurrection, but we've lost sight of our current mission because we've gotten caught up in a secular way of thinking about life and living. What am I gonna get out of it? What's the legacy that I'm gonna leave behind? All of this is a very secular way to think. The real question is, in what way am I carrying forward what the earlier generations were building? And am I caring about the things that they cared about? In fact, one of Moshe Rabbeinu's tefillos that he davens for the success of the Jewish people on the 17th of Tammuz is to remember that which you promised to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yisrael, your servants, because you promised them that they and their building, their missions would be carried forward. And that's part of the tefillah that, that Hashem accepts, that Hashem will not destroy the Jewish people in order to give permanence to what Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yisrael were building. If we have that mindset, we take a much longer view of history and the purpose of history, and we become a part of it. In Kapitol, in Tehillim, number 115, you should look at that. I'm not going to recite the whole um, passage right now, but look at that psalm, and you'll see very clearly, it's Yivarech Yispeis Yisrael, Yivarech Yispeis Aharon, Yivarech Yirei Hashem. And what we talk about is that there's a house of the Jewish people. There's a house of Aharon. There's a house of those people that have awe for Hashem. And the rabbis tell us that the one that is most blessed, the one that is most elevated, are those that have awe for Hashem. That is the most permanent, so to speak, and the highest house of all. And the end of that psalm tells us that the dead people don't praise Hashem, but we, the Jewish people, we do bless Hashem forever, because even though we experience death in this world, we are part of an eternity that goes way beyond this world. But it's a mindset that we need to have now. We praise Hashem now, not because, hey, now it's only our opportunity, then we're going to die. No, it's because we are building something permanent. You know, this instinct that people have to leave a permanent legacy very often gets carried out in the building. You know, brick and mortar seem to be more permanent to people. And so therefore they like to leave names on buildings and things that, you know, are concrete. But we are all smart enough to know that everything that exists is really temporary. The only thing that's really permanent is Hashem. And Hashem has declared that the true permanence of existence is base Yisrael and base Aharon and year a Hashem. So one of the terrible consequences of sin is not only mortality, but also that the people who live tend to not think in terms of the big picture of eternity and their role 
in that eternity. Stepping into the roles of our parents does not start with position. It starts with caring for what our parents are living and what they cared about. And so therefore I suggest if we wanna really put together the Parsha in terms of the topics and understanding what the connection between these things are, is that Pinchas is awarded the priesthood because what his mindset is, Pinchas' mindset is that to make a public demonstration that the Jewish people could attach to idolatry, that even the Jewish leadership, Zimri, could attach to idolatry and to other nations of the world, that is an absolute desecration of the house of Hashem. And wouldn't you know it, that the Rambam tells us incredible phrasing, it's a topic that we've been studying in the yeshiva, Kiddush Hashem, the Rambam says, which means sanctifying the name of Hashem, all base Yisrael is obligated in Kiddush Hashem. Because the real permanent accomplishment of the Jewish people is to establish the primacy of Hashem's existence. And that has to be the main, almost the reason, the etra of base Yisrael, to establish Kiddush Hashem. And of course, we understand why it's so difficult that Moshe and Aaron failed in the Kiddush Hashem of the waters of the Riva, and that's why we are learning in our parsha that Moshe Rabbeinu in some way failed in that regard, and therefore he and Aharon die in the Midbar and do not take the Jewish people in. The Jewish people are counted. We count. The Jewish people count. Who we are is what makes the world have a purpose, and specifically in this purpose of Kiddush Hashem, which again Pinchas establishes. Pinchas has this perspective because he is a descendant of Elazar and a descendant of Aharon. And Pinchas thinks about the sanctity of the Jewish people, which is why Pinchas, who is Eliyahu, ultimately is the one who attends every Jewish circumcision, which is a major part of attesting to the truth of Hashem's existence. And also, of course, the Pesach. He, he attends everyone's home on Pesach. And that's also why we talk about in this week's parsha the ultimate inheritance of Eretz Israel by the Jewish people. As we've explained, Hashem agrees with the daughters of Tzlafad that really they do need to build the role of their, their father when they have no sons. That's also what the inheritance laws are coming to teach us, Moshe Rabbeinu's death. And finally, the, uh, the laws of the, of the daily offering and the Musaf offerings are all about the special relationship that Hashem has with the Jewish people as represented by these days. And so I think that for us, practically speaking, we'll get the questions and comments in, in, in a minute. For us, practically speaking, we need to really think long and hard about what are the things that our parents stood for? What did they truly build in their lives that has durability and meaning? It's not all about you know, a community leadership position. It's mostly about Kiddush Hashem. Because what a base Israel really does establish is the recognition of Hashem's existence being absolute and that we have a mission as a people to make the world aware of the existence of Hashem and to really try to advance the world to living in the reality that Hashem is true and real. That's going to be what the ultimate future is. And that's when we know that our mission Will ultimately be fulfilled, which I think is why Rus is given this particular blessing, because it's in advance of the coming of the Mashiach that the, the Torah is telling us that Rus should build a home, just like Rachel and Leah built a home, 
and that home is the home of Israel, which is to establish the primacy of Hashem's existence in the world. So if we think about what did our parents do that was a real Kiddush Hashem, and we ask ourselves, have we stepped into that role? Are we building the future of that? That should guide us to a really good extent of what we should be paying attention to in our lives. And if we do that, it will help us to feel attached to the permanence of the Jewish people, help us feel attached to them, which everybody you know, struggles with because you know, it's a terrible thing. There is death in the world and we get detached from our loved ones. But to the extent that we all join together in building what the earlier generations did, we become attached to the previous generations and to the base Israel at large, which gives a tremendous comfort for our future and also gives us a direction for how to live. Any questions or comments? So we're, we have the question in the room about how does it work with women? And the answer is very simple. The husband and wife become a team. Now it is true that not every single person is married. That's true, but you know that's we're talking about in general about how it's supposed to work. In general, it passes on to a son, but not every family has sons or has children, right? So that's why we do have a collective base Israel. Uh, but the goal is to ultimately build and become connected to the important work of the previous generations. You could use we could use Rus as an example, right? She was from a different nation. She converted. She really had no past. But because she attached to the mission of Naomi and that family, she actually became, uh, you know, a progenitor of the Mashiach. So to the extent that anybody in any role that they have in life become connected to building the base in Israel, they have a permanent future. Having said that the woman build her husband's, the husband's So the husband and the wife together build whatever the, uh, future is, but yes, the the just like the Gemara tells us that in the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman were attached and they walked forward, so to speak, in the direction that the husband took them, but at the same time, they were connected and they had to work together as a team to do that role and that mission. So too, that's what happens typically, women attached to their husband's role uh, and you know their family of origin. And so they build that family, which is, you know, again, what, uh, what, what Rus did. Any other question or comment? What would that look like? Meaning what? Like, like a woman building her, like, what, what would be a practical example? Oh, okay, we're asking uh, for a practical example. So whatever the family has stood for in the past, so whether it's chesed or it's Torah, uh, but usually it's very specific areas of chesed and Torah, then that's what we should think about, you know, building. Um, if, you know, a family was very involved in helping uh, orphan children or special needs children, right? That would be two very different uh, examples, right? That would be uh, something to continue building. If they're involved in education, that would be something to continue building. They're, you know, involved in shul building and, and community building. That would be, you know, uh, a way to continue. All of these things uh, should be, I think, looked at 
in terms of what did our parents do? What did our grandparents do? And think about what was the, what was the long-term contribution that they made and what are we doing of a similar nature? Because that's really our job. We have to be doing it on their behalf. But we also have to be doing it for the sake of the long-term Jewish people. So you have to think about what did, what did our ancestors really do? I think that, you know, I just want to conclude with what's real, what should really help is that if a person is able to assess that and begin doing that, it provides direction, but also it gives a sense of, I wouldn't say immortality, but being connected to something that's much bigger and larger that should feel very grounding, very um, affirming and give a person, you know, a sense of, of tremendous comfort. And if a person can't find that, so to speak, in their past for whatever reason, they've converted, you know, they don't have uh, a legacy from parents or grandparents that they know about, whatever the reason would be, then the thing to do would be to attach to someone who looks like they're building base Israel in a significant way and become part of that. And then, and then they really are, you know, becoming part of this much larger picture that that the Dawah Malach is talking about in Psalms, that this is what Hashem blesses. Hashem blesses base Israel. Hashem blesses base Aram and Yirei Hashem. And we get a feeling of, of, of tremendous exhilaration and living from that. Take one question here. Okay. Um, okay. Very good, everyone. We have one more comment, sorry. Yes, uh, yes, so Ari is, is pointing out that, uh, I did mention some of this, that the Benos Slavka were, were specifically arguing on their father's behalf, that their father should have a legacy. Yes, I mentioned that, not their own. And the primary theme of Yibum, which is building the home of others and ultimately Klal Yisrael, yes, that's exactly right. And, and we can all do that, Yibum teaches us how even when a person doesn't have it uh, themselves, that somebody else should step in and do that. that. That's actually what it teaches us. That's part of the connection that we have to each other as Jewish people. And Hashem gave us the ability to act on other people's behalves in a very significant way.